Hello and welcome to the second episode of the SWIB podcast, where members of the Wisconsin Retirement System can turn for timely information on the investments that help fund the state's pension system. I'm Chris Preisler, Communications Specialist for the State of Wisconsin Investment Board, or SWIB. And I'm Dusty Weiss, producer of the podcast. What do well-known Wisconsin companies like Kohl's and Harley-Davidson, industrial warehouses in Southern California, a mall in New Orleans, and a construction loan on a New York City office tower have to do with how your retirement funds are managed? Well, it turns out holdings from these and many other similar investments are part of the diverse and robust private markets and funds alpha portfolio that helps SWIB deliver high-performance results for the Wisconsin Retirement System Trust Funds. In this episode, we'll talk to Anne-Marie Fink, SWIB's Managing Director of Private Markets and Funds Alpha, to learn more about how these unique investment opportunities benefit the Wisconsin retirement system. The SWIB podcast is a monthly opportunity for you to learn more about the people and funds that comprise the Wisconsin retirement system. Please make sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your fellow WRS members and leave a review on iTunes so it's easier for other members to find the show. Joining us today is Anne-Marie Fink, SWIB's Managing Director of Private Markets and Funds Alpha. Anne-Marie joined SWIB in January and brings over two decades of investment experience in both the public and private sectors. Prior to joining SWIB, Anne-Marie served as the Chief Investment Officer for the Employees Retirement System of Rhode Island and for a large family office. Anne-Marie earned a Bachelor of Arts degree from Yale and an MBA from Columbia University Business School. Anne-Marie, thank you for joining us today and welcome to the SWIB podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Anne-Marie, two decades of experience in any field is impressive, but especially in the field of investment, both in the public and private sector. So tell us a little bit more about yourself and your experience. I imagine with the time that you've spent in the industry, you've amassed both a lot of experience and and probably more than a few great stories. I don't know about that, but you certainly make me sound very old. So <laughs> so yes, I have been doing this actually probably for close to 25 years now. And I really do enjoy it because it's such a varied and interesting job to be following investments, to deal with a wide variety of people, a wide variety of subjects, to try to incorporate a whole host of items into making an investment decision. And I'm also feel very blessed to have joined SWIB earlier this year because not only do we get to deal with a wide variety of investments and the markets where you're constantly learning and things are constantly changing, also though the work that we do has such a deep impact on individuals every day and that ability to have that impact, that mission aspect is a really important part of the role for me and for the staff that I work with. Emory, when we watch the nightly news or glance at the newspaper, we always hear about the stock markets and how they're performing. So most of us are familiar with investments in the public markets, which includes stocks and bonds. But you oversee a team that's investing in private markets. What are private markets? 
So private markets are companies similar to what you see in public markets. They're just owned by a much smaller group of people. So rather than being a stock where, you know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of individuals and institutions will own a very small piece of the company, private markets tend to be companies and other assets. So like real estate that are owned by one or a, just a handful of institutions. The reason that's an interesting space or a place for us to invest is there are many things that you can do on the private market side that are harder to do on the public market side. So for instance, if, if you have a company that needs to undergo a change, change their business model or or do something that, that where they want to go from point A to point B, but it's going to be a little rocky in between. That's often much easier to do in the private markets because you've got a, a small set of investors who can uh, buy into the strategy early on and then follow it through a process that may have a few bumps on the road. So it's a much easier way to, in some ways, to own things. One of the things that's interesting right now about private markets is we actually have seen for a whole host of reasons, a real change over, I would say the last actually probably 20 years or so, where the number of publicly traded companies has actually shrunk in the U.S. by about half. And so we're seeing a lot more companies involved in the private markets and be held privately. And so a big part of trying to find the best opportunities for SWIB is going where the assets are. And if there's fewer assets in the public markets, we want to go into the private markets. This is really fascinating to me because I think when most people think about trade and the markets, they immediately think about the public markets, like Chris said. But when SWIB invests in these private markets, are there other pension funds like SWIB that are out there also making these same kinds of investments? So generally the way many of these investments work is you will have a general partner who collects funds from a variety of limited partners and then they create a pool of capital and then they go out and buy private companies or in the case of real estate, private assets such as buildings. So SWIB tends to be one of those limited partners. And so when we go into these funds, typically there's a few hundred other investors like us alongside us and they can range from there'll be other state plans actually a lot of other pension plans both public and private corporate pensions um, you'll see sometimes some family offices or, or wealthy individuals you'll see sometimes some sovereign wealth funds so there's a whole host of generally larger more institutional investors that will the capital get pooled together and then you hire the general partner to go out and select the investments and then to really manage the companies once they've purchased them. How much does SWIB have invested in private markets compared to those other funds? So our percentage in private markets is probably pretty similar to other funds that are about our size. 
So we are about 17% or so, or about $17 billion in private markets. And that would split about two thirds in private companies, both private equity and private debt, and the other third or so in real estate assets, so buildings. Compared to other pools of capital that are similar to ours, so think of other large pensions or sovereign wealth funds, I would say that number's about the same. You would probably see a variety that goes between 20% to 10%, so we're probably right around in the middle, 25% to 10%. And of course, SWIB's goal through all of this is to create a robust and diversified investment strategy to benefit members of the Wisconsin retirement system. What role does investing in these private markets play to ensure that you have that robust, diversified strategy? So investing in private markets gives us access to a number of areas that we can't necessarily get in the public markets. One is a subset of the private markets is venture capital. So if you think about companies that are starting basically from nothing and then growing into really sizable companies, that's one area that it's much harder actually to access in the public markets. And probably the best example of that is through one of these funds, we actually own a, a, a stake in Zoom, Zoom Media, which many people are using now. And so that's been one of our highly successful investments versus where we invested. It's probably up 20, 30 times. And so that kind of, um, wow. yeah. That kind of opportunity is not generally available in the public markets, that kind of appreciation. So that's an example. Another example that I'll give you is where I was talking about earlier that sometimes you have a company that's going to really transform itself. And so to give an example, if you have a company that traditionally in the software space, companies used to sell licenses. So they would, you know, they would sell once and then five years later, they would sell you something again as they were making improvements. Most software companies now are making a transition from that model where they do a big sale once every, say, five years to what they're now calling software as a service or more of a subscription model where somebody pays basically once a quarter. And the advantage to the client of that is that you always have the most up-to-date version of the software. The challenge for a company when they're going from, I'm selling a lot once every five years to I'm selling a little every year. It's actually a better business model in the long term. However, during the transition, there's a period where your revenue will fall off pretty substantially. If you're a publicly traded company while you're going through that transition, that can be really hard. It can make it really hard for your investors. Your stock price tends not to do well. So transitions like that are often easier to do in the private markets. So that's because they also generate a fair amount of value. That's also another reason why we want access to those kind of opportunities because by taking that longer term view that the private markets generally can take, you're going to create more value over time. And we're looking to create the most value or capture the most value creation for the participants in the WRS. 
So on top of the diversification, the private equity and the real estate have really performed well over the past several years, generating some very good returns that benefit the WRS trust funds. Why do you think those areas have been able to perform so well? And do you see that performance continuing in the future? In the long term, yes. The shorter term can be harder to predict. I think there's a few structural reasons why that performance has happened and why we expect it to continue. There's actually, I think, some advantages to having a smaller investor base. It makes it easier for everybody to align around a strategy and to actually pursue a strategy over multiple years, which can be somewhat tougher in the public markets when you've got one investors saying, I want you to pay out a lot of money to me, and others saying you should invest and build a new factory. And, and so it can, be, it can be somewhat harder to do that sort of consistent strategy. That's one reason. A second reason is interest rates right now are quite low. And so it serves companies well to actually have a reasonable, not too much, because you can get into trouble with having too much debt, it does serve companies though well to have a reasonable amount of debt. It is somewhat easier for companies to maintain larger debt when you have a smaller investor base and also Many of these general partners that help to run these private companies are very skilled at bringing debt into the company. So they actually help the companies in managing their equity and their debt financing so that they're funding themselves as cost effectively as possible. I think those are a couple reasons, certainly the ability to access the innovation that I talked about earlier. We're seeing a real acceleration in some of the things that are happening on the innovation front, not only in, I talked earlier about kind of examples of software innovation, we're also seeing it on the life sciences. So we also invest in startup biotechnology companies. And that with everything that's going on in the world right now is actually an area that's seeing kind of leaps and bounds in terms of the improvements in the innovation. Anne-Marie, I think that's part of what's so exciting about venture capital and, and real estate investments in particular right now is that they're so unique, but also you can kind of tie it back to something that you know. I'm still agog that the state of Wisconsin Investment Board has holdings in Zoom right now. I, certainly nobody could have predicted the way that video conferencing would take off this year or the events that would have precipitated that. But can you tell us about a few of SWIB's other more interesting, notable investments that kind of create that light bulb moment for folks as they go, oh, wow, that's that's what's funding my retirement fund? Yes. Yeah, so we have a number of interesting investments that span actually different strategies. So some of the strategies are private equity, which is where we're investing in established companies, taking them private, maybe rejiggering them, making them focus a little bit more on long-term strategies. The second part of what we're doing is venture capital, which is where we're funding companies that don't even really exist yet. They're usually just a business plan and we're starting something up from scratch. Some notable local favorites that we've invested in in the past would include Tomotherapy and New Wave Medical. And those were groups where we collaborated with researchers based in the Madison area to develop new and exciting medical technologies that are 
actually improving lives for people around the world in addition to generating returns for the WRS. We also actually have an investment in Eat Street, which many people in the local area may be familiar with because it's become a lifeline for a lot of people as they order in food. And then on the larger national basis, some of the companies that we have investments in and that are good examples actually of this innovation is people I'm sure are familiar with Airbnb and Uber. And some other ones that may be somewhat less well-known is DocuSign, which has also become a lifeline for a lot of people to sign documents during this period when we don't actually meet people in person anymore. And then actually a couple other examples are Yeti, which anybody that's been to a tailgate or or has a coffee mug may be familiar with. The cooler people. They make the really (laughs) intense coolers. Yes, exactly. So that's another one that's been a real success story for the fund. And then hopefully when we get back to more regular interactions, we also have an investment in Topgolf, which people may be familiar with as a way to spend some leisure time practicing your golf swing, and in Bird, which is a a scooter rental company. That's fascinating. And and of course, Topgolf is something that's of interest to guys like me because out on the golf course, you tend to get a lot of sunburn when you don't have a lot of hair on top of your head. This is tough in a podcast because you can't see me, but there, there's nothing up there, folks. So Top Golf is an opportunity to practice your golf swing indoors away from the harsh UV light of the sun and the sunburn that follows along with that. But no, that's a really interesting portfolio that you've outlined there, Amory. Yes, we've been very fortunate to, we have a great staff and we're able to really go out and find some of these really exciting opportunities. So you talk about venture capital, you have, or SWIB has portfolios that are specific to Wisconsin venture capital and private debt. Can you talk a little bit about how those portfolios and the investments in those portfolios have really helped write some success stories in the state and how important they are? Yeah, so it's an interesting balancing act because we need to maintain turns for WRS, and that is our first and foremost priority. At the same time, we do want to work with local groups to both help the state and then actually make returns. So we've been very fortunate on the venture side, particularly in some of the biotech and health sciences areas. So there's been a number of groups, I mentioned Tomotherapy and New Wave Medical earlier, that have been real success stories. And we're funding currently a number of other ones that we hope will follow in those footsteps. Certainly having access to some of the great staff and expertise at UW-Madison has also been a huge benefit for us. And so a number of the investments that we have made have really piggybacked off some of that expertise. So I would say those are some areas. And then on the private debt side, some of the things that we been able to do is, again, while maintaining our standards around performance requirements, has been to identify groups locally where we can use our capital to hit that double bottom line of both earning returns and then helping out the state. Organic Valley is a loan that we had until quite recently, and I think we were very helpful with that group at a time when it was harder for them to borrow money. Now, actually, they are able to borrow money quite 
well outside of us. So they've actually repaid our loan recently. Uh, Johnson Bank, CUNA Mutual, and uh, Harley-Davidson that we mentioned earlier are just a few other examples of groups locally that we have lent money to. So let's turn to the second half of your title, Funds Alpha. What is Funds Alpha and why is it important to helping SWIB meet its goals? So Funds Alpha refers to basically when we invest in public markets through third-party asset managers. So SWIB has a really interesting combination of both in-house and out-of-house investments on the public market side. So on the public market side, we have a big team, and I'm sure you're going to talk to them eventually, that invest internally. And then we have a team of, I would call them more sharpshooters of external managers. So we can do some niche investments that are somewhat harder for our in-house team to do from Madison. So a few examples would be, we have a couple managers, third-party managers that are doing emerging market debt for us. So investing in emerging markets requires a larger team, the ability to visit many of these places. And so we've outsourced that to some managers. And then in hedge funds where we're investing in some really cutting edge strategies. So what are some of the benefits to having a Funds Alpha program? So I would say the three main reasons for our Funds Alpha program. One is it does keep us on the cutting edge and gives us access to the best and the brightest in the investment world. And so we can see what's out there and what we might over time want to bring in-house. Two, it does give us access to a number of areas that it's harder for us to do from in-house. So going back to the example I gave of emerging market debt. And then three, it also gives us access to the ability to move kind of more quickly sometimes around some opportunities. So for instance, I'll give you an example there. During the dislocation that we saw in the markets in March, there were a number of relatively safe investments where you had two securities that were very similar and should trade very similar to one another because of what was going on in the markets and a number of investors having redemptions or having to sell things. We saw two securities that should trade very much in parallel with one another really gap out and get very wide from one another. We were able in the month of April to put money with a number of managers that trade those securities and they were able to invest at a time when those securities were very wide and basically we've generated very nice returns as more normal times have reasserted themselves over the last three to four months and so as the two securities have come back into sort of a more normal alignment we've been able to generate some very nice returns for the portfolio. This is a fascinating look behind the curtain of how these funds get managed, especially during really unprecedented times like we saw at the end of quarter one, beginning of quarter two of this year. And certainly uncertainty, volatility, unforeseen global events, these can have a huge impact on the financial markets, but they're par for the course. These are things that investors have seen in the past and have had to work through, but we haven't seen anything like the COVID-19 pandemic. How has the volatility that the pandemic has caused the global economy affected private markets? 
So it's had a pretty big effect across the board. Let me actually answer a little bit for Funds Alpha and then I'll get to the private markets. In Funds Alpha, it did create some real opportunities. As I described, we saw a number of things that got quite dislocated or out of a normal relationship where we were able to put capital to work. And as it returned to a more normal relationship, we were able to generate some really nice returns. So that's one area that we saw an advantage. Another area that we saw an advantage is with many of the third-party managers that we use, they are capacity constrained. So they're very good managers and they are able to generate very high returns. And so everybody can figure that out. And so it's actually, we need to convince them to take our capital because they have hundreds of people who are willing to give them capital. During the downturn in the late first quarter, beginning of the second quarter, there were a lot of those folks, the people that we compete with to put money with these best managers kind of got distracted, weren't able to focus. And so we were really able to scoop up some capacity with some of these really high performing managers. So that's another area where the kind of a period of panic that we saw earlier this year, we were able really to capitalize on. So that's in the funds alpha area. In the private markets area, Things tend to move a little bit more slowly. One of the advantages of being private markets is you don't have daily stock prices or minute by minute stock prices, which does allow the managers to generally take a somewhat longer view. So in some ways, it was actually a little less impacted than our funds alpha, where our managers are trading public securities. That's not to say though, that there weren't any opportunities. So certainly we saw opportunities where companies, many companies, because they weren't sure what was going to happen, raised a bunch of extra money, which allowed us and our managers to get preferential terms when we did it. So for instance, there was a financing for Airbnb. They were, you know, in April, they didn't know what was going to happen to their business. So they wanted to raise some extra capital, make sure that they had the staying power to get through this period of dislocation. And so we, through one of our managers, was able to provide some capital to them that came with some very nice, attractive terms. So that's one example. There were a few other examples with managers. We also have managers on the private market side, similar to Funds Alpha, where they are capacity constrained, where we have to convince them to take our capital instead of other people's capital. And again, because of the dislocation, we were able in a few cases to put more money to work in some of these really top tier managers than we would have been able to if there hadn't been a pandemic. So in a time of volatility, like the pandemic's caused, you're seeking out and taking advantage of those opportunities. But as a long-term investor, when you go through these situations or these unforeseen events, does it really have an impact on your long-term investment strategy? There's a few elements to that question, Chris. So certainly we don't want to overreact to what's happening in the markets at any given point in time, right? And one of the advantages of going back to the 25 years is that I and actually many of my staff have seen a lot of these cycles and it helps us to not overreact to what's happening. And it helps us also to keep a clear head and seize opportunities rather than become paralyzed by some of the 
the turmoil that's happening. So at the end of the year, when we look back on 2020, we're going to find that SWIB actually did a pretty good job in doing that, in seizing the opportunities that the market presented, particularly during the downturn that we saw in March and April. So that, I would say, hasn't affected us. What probably does have more of an impact and does get factored into the way we think about things is because of everything that's going on, interest rates are considerably lower than they were even at the beginning of the year. And the expectation is that they will remain quite low for an extended period of time. And so that's something that we certainly need to factor into the way we think about where we want to invest in fixed income versus equities or other strategies as we think about opportunities to borrow money as well as lend it out. So that actually does have a little bit more of an impact on how we think about the portfolio. So turning your attention then to the months and years in front of us now, what do we see going forward and what do you expect to happen? Well, if I knew that, I'd be sitting on my private island at the moment. (laughs) Somebody out there has to know. I'm just trying to find that person. So we definitely think about probabilities, right? So one of the things that I have kind of a love-hate relationship with in the investment business is we are trying to predict the future, which is basically impossible to do, right? So what we're trying to do is think about probabilities, think about risk, think about where we're going to get the highest return given the probabilities of what could happen from here. As we look forward, I would say there's a few things that we're doing. We are certainly focused on private markets because we have found, because the private market funds that we invest in are able to take a longer term view for the most part, we are finding opportunities in the private markets and allocating capital there where we can. As I mentioned earlier, we are finding opportunities with some of these top tier capacity constrained managers, and we're looking to allocate to them and to position ourselves to be an investor of choice. So we're also being somewhat judicious in thinking about how we allocate our capital. It's been a really interesting year given everything that's happening in the real economy and then in the markets. And we do think that there will be opportunities over the course of this year that we haven't seen them all yet. And so we're being quite measured in seizing some opportunities that we've seen, but also making sure we're prepared if additional opportunities become available over the course of this year that we have the capital available to seize those as well. So let's change gears a little bit. You are an author. You wrote a book called The Money Makers, How Extraordinary Managers Win in a World Turned Upside Down seems like an appropriate title given the world we're living in right now. Yeah, no kidding. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Actually, the interesting thing about that is the world turned upside down was the 2008 world. So the book was published in 2009. So it just goes to show to your point earlier that these dislocations come Mm -hmm. every, hopefully every 10 years, not sooner, but they do come around frequently. It was a great opportunity that I had to take a year off and write a book. And the book was, it was actually a little bit more about management 
of companies as opposed to management of investments through the lens of investors. So investors spend a ton of time both in the public markets and the private markets in looking at companies, what's going to make a company more valuable over time, how can they operate more efficiently. And that expertise is often not captured. So there's a bunch of lessons that investors learn on how to manage that the book tried to capture and share more broadly. In the book, you provide this pragmatic framework for thriving as a company in the hyper-competitive world that we live in right now. What does that framework look like? Yeah, so there's a number of elements to it. And in some ways, it's taking an investment approach to managing a company. So for instance, thinking a lot about risk. Risk is something that investors think about every day and probabilities of the market going up, probabilities of the economy doing well, or probabilities of the economy doing less well, or interest rates going up, interest rates going down. In the investment world, you think a lot about risk. It's not always something when individuals are managing companies that they think about as much. And so one of the ideas was to really think about risk and thinking about ways to mitigate risk by taking baby steps towards achieving a long-term goal as opposed to, you know, putting all your chips on one big project that's going to get you to the future rather than that taking smaller projects or breaking projects down into smaller pieces and trying to mitigate risk by doing one step at a time as opposed to trying to take some giant leap. That's one example of things that I learned from talking to companies and talking to investors that oversee companies. I think another thing that I learned that I apply definitely every day in my role at SWIB is the importance of having a goal and a a larger mission to what people do. Even in some of the most reputedly cutthroat finance organizations where everybody seems to be just out for making lots of money, actually the best ones are ones where there's an esprit de corps, a mission, a goal that's more than just making money. It's about being excellent or something to that effect. Part of what differentiates us at SWIB is the mission that we have to serve the WRS participants and also to really create an organization that is a top-tier asset manager. So writing and publishing a book is quite an accomplishment. Any plans to write another one? Not in the near term. <laughs> it is a, you learn about the, the terror of the blank page. So <laughs> maybe eventually, but no near-term plans. Maybe after I retire and in hopefully many years from now. So what I'm hearing there, Chris, is she's busy enough already. Thanks very much. Right, exactly. (laughs) Anne-Marie Fink, Managing Director of Private Markets and Funds Alpha. This has been a great discussion today. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the SWIB podcast. We'll be bringing you updates on a monthly basis, so make sure to take a moment and subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Also, remember to follow SWIB on LinkedIn or subscribe to our email list for more information. The SWIB podcast is brought to you by the State of Wisconsin Investment Board and produced by PodCamp Media, branded podcast production for businesses, podcampmedia.com. Thanks again for listening. I'm Chris Preisler. And I'm Dusty Weiss.